Greetings and welcome to the latest edition of the Big D Podcast. On the line today is the only fellow who could cover dunks, threes, be Gary Danielson, Troy Aikman's father, and hosts his own radio show, David Moulton. Big D, huh? Is that what you came up with? Yep. The Big D Podcast? Yep. That's not bad. That'll work. Not like you, so... uh could you tell us a little about your uh, radio show, Miller and Moulton? I hear it's a pretty decent sports uh, radio Are you show. serious? Are you serious? Isn't that why you called me? <laughs> no. Uh, 14 years now, so uh, don't know what the future holds, but uh, 14 years. Been tough broadcasting through a pandemic, so we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Contract's up in eight months. We'll see what happens. Yeah, is that the same headset you would bring to all your football games? No, this is what I used to do the show with. Only I, uh, you know, or when I'm on location doing FGCU, I would just bring this microphone down. But I need to get uh, some buds. Yeah, I I gave mine to my daughter. All right, I need to get some buds. So uh, speaking of broadcasting, with uh, doing games for CBS and Fox, doing the college football and NFL season, how has broadcasting changed in the pandemic? Well, it's been weird without fans. I mean, even we did our very first game for Fox this year was Tampa Bay at New Orleans. It was Brady's debut. And there was not a person in the Superdome. And the Saints have as raucous a home field as anyone in the NFL and outside is a party. And it was so weird walking up and there literally was one cop car with blinking lights and a cop sitting on the hood. And that was it. There was no one in the streets of new Orleans. You walked in the Superdome. There was nothing. I remember it was a four twenty-five kickoff and it was four o'clock and the one o'clock games were ending and we were all standing in the booth and there was no one on the field. No one in the stands and no one on the field. And we were 22 minutes away from kickoff. And we looked at one another like, is there a football game happening today? Because there is no evidence of it right now. But that's why we're here, right? It was very surreal. We did a Thursday night game a couple of weeks later in Cleveland. It had 6,000 fans. It felt like the place was packed. I mean, that's how much difference some fans are versus no fans. So the places like Tampa and Miami who are finding a way to put 12, 13, 15,000 in, believe me, it makes a difference. It really does. I'll bet you the players notice also. Yeah, that little extra adrenaline helps. I mean, look what happened with the Bengals two nights ago, whooping the Steelers as two touchdown dogs. Yeah, I mean, just to have to produce all of the energy yourself. Right. Never mind. The the single biggest thing that we noticed, though, was that there were a lot more defensive players jumping off sides. That the snap, I mean, everything at the line of scrimmage could be heard much more clearly. And we thought it would benefit the defensive players. And it turns out to have been a hindrance. All right. The quarterbacks have been able to get more guys to jump in the neutral zone and jump off sides because of it. Yeah, when you've got Aaron Rodgers and these wily old veterans with the uh, snap cadence, uh, offsides or neutral zones. Well, and it's also been entertaining to find out, like, what some of the audibles, you know, what they're called. 
you know, like uh, in Roethlisberger on Monday night, you know, he changed to play at the line of scrimmage from a pass to a run, and he yelled out, chalk, chalk. And as Brian Greasy pointed out, what do you do with chalk? You draw on the board. And so he went chalk, chalk, and he changed it to a draw play, you know. And so that was, you know, because he didn't yell out anything else. So that was, you know, that, that stuff you can hear clear as day. So uh, what game are you doing this week? I'm guessing L.A., Seattle? Yeah, but uh, Christmas Day, we have, uh, we have a day on Christmas. First NFL game on a Friday in like a decade. And um, I don't think I've ever done a Christmas Day game before. But uh, Vikings at Saints, a rematch of their playoff game. Uh, thought it was going to mean something a week or two ago, but back-to-back losses for the Vikings, and they're basically done. And the Saints now are in control for the number one seed right now after, I wouldn't say bad losses, but uh, a couple of disappointing losses against Jalen Hurton and Mahomes. Yeah. What they need is they need a three-way tie. They need to finish in a three-way tie with Green Bay and, and or Seattle or the Rams, but right now it would look like it'd be Seattle. The Saints would win a three-way tie. Saints end up tied with the Packers. Packers beat them head-to-head. Packers would own the tiebreaker. But the Saints actually would win a three-way tie. Would that be better? Because it'd come down to conference record and then possibly common opponents. But So Green Bay right now, if Green Bay beats Chicago, if Green Bay is going to split their last two, they've got Tennessee at home and at Chicago. Of the two games – the one that if Green Bay wins, they clinch the one seed is at Chicago because it'd be an NFC win. And even if they finish tied with the Saints, they, you know, that's the one they need. It's funny because most people would say Green Bay needs to beat Tennessee because if Titans being a physical run team with Derrick Henry and Tannehill playing so well, you would think Green Bay would need to beat Tennessee, not the Bears. It's an AFC game, though. Conference games are always more important this time of year. Yeah, so uh, speaking of the Rams, uh, were you, how shocked were you that the Jets actually won a game? Quite shocked. Quite shocked. Uh, Sean McVay said he was embarrassed. Something happened this past weekend which had not happened since the merger. Not one, but two teams who had won nine or less games than their opponent winning outright. Because obviously the Rams, you know, had nine wins and the Jets had none. And then the Bengals had two wins and the Steelers had 11. So that had not happened before. Two teams who were nine games worse in the standings than their opponent winning on the same weekend. Yeah, now the Jets could potentially lose out on Trevor Lawrence because now Jacksonville's... Owns the tiebreaker because of strength of schedule. And if you look at the Jags last two games, you've got the Bears and the Colts. I mean, realistically, I don't think Jacksonville's win any of those games. I mean, could probably not. And quite frankly, they should do everything they can not to. I mean, let's let's be honest about this. If you've lost thirteen in a row and you're one in thirteen, what's the difference between you know, if the difference between one and fifteen and two and fourteen is potentially losing out on a generational quarterback, then you damn sure better finish. One in 15. I mean, I work with Troy Aikman, and Aikman thought he was going to Green Bay. 
because with a couple of weeks left in the season, Green Bay was in line for the number one pick of the draft in the late 80s. And Green Bay won a quote-unquote meaningless game either the last week or the second to last week of the year. And because of it, Dallas jumped ahead of them. And so we all know the rest is history. But Troy thought he was going to Green Bay. Yeah, and then uh, Green Bay uh, made one of the worst draft ones. We five fall of famous in the top five. You drafted a drafted right, you, you drafted the one bust of the of you know the great. It's kind of like that NBA draft when the Pistons drafted Darko, and Hall of Famers went one, three, four, and five. Oops. Yeah. So, who do you think is looking the best right now? Because I mean, yeah, Kansas City is what. 13 and one 13 and one right now but the bills look good they do they played earlier this year we did that game and surprisingly kansas city won it by running buffalo dared them they only put six in the box they made sure they kept two safeties deep and they basically said we're not going to let you have big passing plays and we're going to make you run the ball and andy reed for one of the few times in his legendary career said okay and they ran for about 260 on the bills and Edwards Alaire had a buck 60 that was before they had levy on. So it would be interesting if they were to meet again, this time it would be in Kansas city and would the bills employ the same philosophy and just say, Hey, we'd rather you play slow than play fast. Go on 10, 12 play drives, play think and dunk. I love what the Patriots did to Peyton Manning in that crazy Sunday night game in Foxville when Manning was a Bronco. Well, I mean, that's the way to play. Unless you feel you can match firepower, firepower. And the Bills are a top-five scoring team. You know, the only game the Chiefs have lost, the Raiders put 40 on them. So if you feel you've got the firepower, okay. But more realistically is to try to slow them down. I mean, would you rather have Mahomes hand the ball off or throw it? Mm, probably, I mean, you know, probably run. Yeah, probably. Especially now with Edwards, Alaris, High Ankle Swain. I mean, you wonder if he'll be back for the playoffs. So uh, now we get to uh, one of our favorite passions of uh, college football. Is this uh, Alabama's year to uh, win a national championship, or could anybody upset them? Well, listen, it's football. Anybody can be beat, and clearly Alabama's defense is not what it has been in past championship years, but you could also say their offense isn't what it's been in past championship years either. This is – uh, arguably, despite losing two first-round picks at wide receiver and a first-round pick at quarterback, this is arguably their best uh, offense, which is remarkable. Um, you're going to have to score points. You figure somebody to beat them has got to get above 35 into the 40s. And so I don't see – even though Notre Dame at the line of scrimmage I think matches up potentially the best of the three potential opponents – um, I mean, Clemson's two and one against them here in recent years in the playoffs, you know, with Trevor Lawrence, what the heck it both teams stronger offensively than defensively this year, Alabama and Clemson, and maybe take your chances in a shootout with Clemson. Justin Fields better play better than he did in the big 10 title game. I'll tell you oh. that. Oh, yeah, Justin Fields was a wreck. I think he had a thumb injury. And well, but he didn't have it going in. He, he developed it during the game, but he, he was not good. And in his two games against good teams this year, he threw five interceptions. 
between Indiana and Northwestern. I, there's a part of me that does not think Fields is going to go second overall now. Yeah, especially with the Jets having the number two pick. You wonder if New York would look to get a tackle. Well, maybe well yeah, which I think broke uh, Cincinnati's heart because Cincinnati's trying to get the big tackle out of Oregon to protect Burrow, and the Jets may grab him at two. So we'll see. It's a long way off. Yeah, so uh, if you uh, could vote for the Heisman, who would be your Heisman right now? Because there, there are just two Alabama guys up for the Heisman, maybe three after what Najee Harris did against the Gators. Yeah, we had a couple of graphics on the SEC championship game that if you go back to 2004, Adrian Peterson and Jason White, the vote between the two of them was split almost to the vote. I mean, they each had right around 960 votes. And because of it, Matt Leinert, with around 1,300 and change, ended up winning the Heisman. And you wonder, could the Alabama players cancel one another out so that maybe Trevor Lawrence potentially wins the Heisman? Do you think Kyle Trask possibly? You know, I mean, you just wonder, is it possible? There was also a year in the early 70s where Ohio State had three of the top six vote getters. And my guess is Alabama is going to have three of the top five with their quarterback wide receiver and running back, which is, you know, pretty remarkable. And ironically, when Ohio State had guys finish second, fifth, and sixth, John Capaletti won the Heisman for Penn State. So if I had to vote for the Heisman, I would vote for Devontae Smith because I would go back to who is the best player in college football. And while I could also make a case for Kyle Pitts, and I mean, you can make the case for five, six guys having the best year and all that. But the ward is supposed to be who is the best player in college football this year. Devontae Smith's numbers compare very favorably to Desmond Howard's numbers in 1991, including a punt return for a touchdown. And Desmond had two that year. And Devontae had more catches, more yards. And, it, you know, best player in college football this year. If Pitts had stayed healthy and played all the games, I might have voted for him. But I think if I had to vote, and I used to vote for the Heisman, I haven't had it in a while, I would vote Devontae Smith number one. Yeah, and also what did he, and also how was Devontae Smith in the biggest game of the year? Yeah, went for 180 yards and two scores. Yeah, I mean, he's if you're the Dolphins with that Houston Texans draft pick, which right now is sixth overall, but I think Houston's going to win this week. So Houston may be picking somewhere between like eight and 11. If you're the Dolphins between Pitts, Smith, and Jamar Chase, the wide receiver from LSU sat out this year. I mean, you have got to be salivating to get your hands on one of those guys for two at a throw to, then you got your first round pick. Then you have Houston's early second round pick also, in which maybe you try to pick up ATN or Najee Harris because they need running backs also. I mean, you know, the Dolphins could really put some weapons around Tua with this upcoming draft and they could do it all off of one team if they wanted. I was, I was thinking uh, Tua, Devontae Smith, Travis Etienne would be unfair in the UFC East for the next five years. Well, the Dolphins need it, goodness knows. I mean, they really only have one weapon you'd consider above average, and that's Gusecki. So, you know, everybody else is pretty pretty average at their positions, so they need to upgrade the talent around Tua. Yeah, especially because, especially with uh, who the Dolphins played last week. I mean, I mean uh, Lynn Bowden. <laughs> 
played played wild. Well, yeah, they're down to third string running backs, third string receivers, but even their first string guys. I mean, Gaskin's not a number one. He's a nice complimentary back. He's not a number one running back. Devontae Parker, he's not a number one wide receiver. I mean, at best, he's a two, may even be a three. So, you know, if you're the Dolphins, I mean, look at your division. You're going to have to compete with Josh Allen and the Bills here for a few years, and they can score some points. And those guys aren't going anywhere. So you better start being able to score some points. If you're going to beat the Chiefs, if you're going to compete with the Bills, you got to score points. And uh, speaking of college football in Alabama, Auburn has finally decided on its next head coach, uh, Boise State head coach, Brian Halson. Uh, were you a surprise? I was. Uh, interesting, this is the second time he's replaced Gus Malzahn. Arkansas State. Right. Um, the fascinating thing about this to me is, is that normally you fire somebody with a replacement in mind. But with a $21-plus buyout, Auburn fired Gus having no rhyme or reason as to what they were going to do next. They just were like, we're tired of you. Get out of here. And that's interesting with such a big buyout. You know, most schools like Texas, you know, the word was they, were, they wanted to get rid of Tom Herman. Well, they really only wanted to get rid of Tom Herman if they could get Urban Meyer. And once Urban indicated, yeah, I'm not interested. Then Texas, with another big buyout, said, well, we'll keep Tom around for another year or so. And Auburn's like, nah, we're good. We're done. Eight years is enough. Get out of here. I mean, and of the $21 million, half of it's due within 30 days. Merry Christmas, Gus Malzahn. <laughs> yeah, $10.5 million coming your way, and then the rest before long. I mean, so obviously, Halston, not just the coach, but his player at Boise. I mean, how will he walk in the SEC? Because I'm not sure if he's left Boise other than his thinner. Well, Texas. you could argue, you could argue that the two best coaches in the last 20 years in the SEC are Nick Saban and Urban Meyer. They didn't have any SEC ties. Nick was a Midwestern guy, came from Michigan State. Urban is a Midwestern guy, came from Utah. So it's all about can you recruit? You know, there's a couple of great recruiters on that Auburn staff. Will he keep them? Who will he bring in with him? You know, when Nick came in, he was not allowed to bring anybody from his Michigan State staff. The whole staff stayed back. And so Nick had to bring in a couple of guys you may have heard of, Will Muschamp, Kirby Smart, guys like that, Jimbo Fisher. And all of a sudden, they started beating the bushes and recruiting for LSU. So, you know, it all depends on the staff and can he recruit. Yeah, recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. And, of course, with Nick Saban, not just in your conference, but in your state, the question is, can you keep the guys in and around your area at home instead of going elsewhere? Bud Elliott, has done, from our 24-7 sports, has done a great job for a couple of years of showing how the four- and five-star kids in the state of Florida have been leaving. Over 50% of the time, they've been leaving. And even this past year on early signing day, like Miami, I guess, got 11 of them. But the second best school in terms of getting four and five stars out of Florida was Alabama. They got as many or one more than Florida even. They got six. So there's no doubt if the big three is going to be the big three again and Florida is the closest one, 
that they need to find a way. And COVID actually helped Miami. Miami kept a lot more kids from Miami-Dade and Broward County home because of COVID. The people didn't go on visits and all that. And so a lot of kids stayed closer to home. And Manny Diaz and the Canes probably caught a break because of it. And so one guy who uh, one guy who should be in contention for a college football playoff every year, but seemingly disappoints once or twice a year, it's Kirby Smart. Uh, the question I have with, about Kirby Smart is: Is he a great coach, recruiter, or little both? Well, he's definitely a great recruiter, and he's at least a very good coach. I mean, he has taken Georgia's program, which was averaging nine and a half to 10 wins a year for 15 years and taken it to a higher level. He just hasn't won the final game of the year yet. Well, there's only four guys coaching who have won the final game of the year. Kirby has had, whether it's bad luck, bad decisions at the quarterback position. I mean, if you think about who's been at Georgia and who could have been at Georgia, you know, Trevor Lawrence was much more likely to go to Georgia than Clemson, if you look back at, at recruiting at the time. You know, but and he had, remember, Eason. He inherited Eason, but he brought in Jake Fromm. Eason gets hurt. He goes with Fromm. Eason transfers. Then Justin Fields goes there, who was in all everything from the greater Atlanta area. Kirby basically made a choice between Fields and Fromm. He chose Fromm. Fields went to Ohio State. You take a look at the two quarterbacks, Fields probably the better quarterback. Probably should have chose Fields. You know, Nick made a really tough decision. Came down to Hertz or Tua. And there came a point in which Tua, after his freshman year, was like, listen, you know, him or me, and if it's him, that's cool. I got to transfer. And Nick said, no, I'm, you're going to be the guy, and we'll tell Hertz. And Hertz stayed for a year before he transferred. And Kirby probably, if he had it over again, would have chose Fields over Fromm, but he also caught a bad break. He thought he was going to have Fromm for two more years. Fromm only stayed a year, and then he went pro. Then all the quarterbacks he brought in this year, the Newman kid from Wake Forest, opts out on him. Uh, he brings in the kid from USC, thought he'd be healthy by the opener. He wasn't. So Kirby's got to get the quarterback thing straightened out. And if he does, the rest of his roster is national championship worthy. Yeah, Seemingly, and it may not be a great pro prospect, but even a Mac Jones would work well for out for Georgia because if you give him a comp a competent quarterback with the running backs and defenders Georgia recruits, the Bulldogs will be playing for national titles or at least SEC titles. Well, and they have been. I mean, you know, they were in it the last two years before this year. In fairness, though, Mac Jones was a three-star recruit. I mean, the Gators were not heavily recruiting Mac Jones because they had Felipe Franks on their radar at the time, and they were getting him, and so Mac just didn't measure up. I mean, Mac was a three-star recruit, and Mac was brought in when they had Hertz and Tua already committed. I mean, Mac Jones deserves a lot of credit, just like Kyle Trask. Both of them went places in which it didn't look like they were going to get a whole lot of playing time. And if they were, they were going to have to wait at least three years to get it. And so, and, and also, Mac Jones was not as good a quarterback then as he is now. So Alabama and the coaching staff between Lane, Sarkeesian, you know, they coached him up, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. 
you think uh, Jones and Trax are potential first rounders or maybe early second rounders? Yeah, that's where I think they'll go. I mean, you know, there's always the possibility that a team may trade in late to the first round and pick the quarterback there because if you take him in the first round, you get five years of contractual control instead of four. So, you know, like Lamar Jackson went 32nd overall, Teddy Bridgewater went 32nd overall, teams wanting to take them in the first round to get that extra year of control. So, I mean, it's possible they could linger into the early second, but it's difficult for me to imagine. First off, Mac Jones has to come out, and we don't know if he will. But it's tough for me to imagine that Kyle Trask makes it out of the first round. I mean, if you're the Steelers right now with a 38-year-old Ben Roethlisberger, you sure you're going to take the chance and let Kyle Trask get out of the first round if he's on the board there at like 26, 28, 30, wherever it is you're drafting? I don't know if I could take that chance. Especially when, you know, somebody's going to grab him, whether it's one of these teams drafting late first or maybe a team trading back in the first round. Well, yeah. I mean, look at the teams right now that would be drafting in the late 20s, early 30s. Now, Kansas City's not going to take one. You know, if it's Seattle, they're not going to take one. Green Bay took their guy last year. But you could see where, you know, I don't think Baltimore would take one. But, you know, Pittsburgh, it's kind of screaming out at you. You know, you know, would Tampa, quite frankly, if, if they're drafting at like 26th, I mean, Brady contractually only committed to them for one more year. He'll be 44 next year. Would it be crazy if they took a quarterback late first round? I don't think so. Yeah, especially – yeah, learning from the GOAT wouldn't be a bad idea, especially with all those weapons. Godwin, Evans, you've got Gronk. I mean, Scotty Miller, Antonio Brown. I, I could think of a better place for – well, but you could also see where whoever they take, that Gronk's not going to be there, and A.B. could also not be there. I mean, a couple of those guys probably won't be there when it's their turn to play. But it's just a matter of, from a franchise standpoint, that, I mean, they're going to have to, this year or next year, look to who replaces Brady. And I think they'll be tempted late first round if Kyle Trask is on the board or Mac Jones is on the board. I think they'll be tempted to take either one of them. Yeah, and so we will end this conversation by talking about FGCU men's and women's basketball. And, oh, it's been crazy watching the uh, fellas and uh, Smetsko's women play this year. The men won in Miami a few weeks ago. Uh, I was one of the, I was a crazy game with FGCU basically shooting threes. Yeah, and Miami going one for 17 from beyond the arc until the final minute of the game. But if you think about it, I mean, they were a 21-point underdog in that game. I mean, if Miami plays their quote-unquote normal game, either FGCU has to be unconscious or they're going to lose. And FGCU played well. And Miami, you know, FGCU threw a zone at them and said to Miami, let's see if you can hit your open shots. And the Canes kept missing. So FGCU stayed in the zone. Canes kept missing. Okay. But what's really impressive to me about the win, besides the obvious, is that, you know, they played that game without the starting point guard. I mean, they won that game with a true freshman point guard. Not a redshirt freshman, 
you know, not a transfer freshman. I mean, the kid who was playing high school ball a couple of months ago. And they went to Miami and won. And they had never beaten a Power 5 team on the road. I mean, you know, the Georgetown tournament win was a neutral court win. I mean, you know, Andy Enfield came close. I mean, they, you know, they lost a couple of one-pointers at TCU and elsewhere. But they had never beaten a Power 5 team on the road. And I think even though they lost to FIU in their next game, I think it told those guys, it reinforced what I know the coaching staff had been saying to them for a while now, which is, hey, you're talented. You're good. Believe in yourselves. And I think that that ultimately you saw it in the win against Georgia Southern. Also, that the, the team is beginning to believe in itself. Georgia Southern cut it to six with three minutes to go. The team played a terrific final three minutes. A lot of poise, hit their shots, got stops, hit their free throws. I mean, it was just perfect execution down the stretch. This team, a rotation is developing. The 10 guys know who are going to play every game. You can, you can see it building, and they've got more talent than they've had the last two years. You can see that. A lot of it's young, but you can see that this team is better and more talented. It's the best team that Fly has had in his three years as head coach. And one guy who's really emerged this year is Caleb Cotter. I mean, goodness sake. I mean, whether it was against Miami or last night, the, the kid from our neck of the woods is uh, balling. Well, he loves the university. It's the place he always wanted to play at. He's, he's the soul of the team in many ways. I mean, you know, he's the unofficial captain. It, it's third year now. I mean, he, he's been there from day one of the fly era, if you will. And there are not many that have because there's been a lot of turnover. And he was a preseason, you know, all a sun guy. And I think that was also a boost of confidence, kind of like, hey, other people think you're pretty good. And I know that the coaching staff has been encouraging him to shoot more because he shoots at a pretty high percentage and they want him to be aggressive. And you're seeing it down the stretch of games. Caleb has no problem firing one up there. And that's good because they need him. And speaking of shooting, uh, how about a semester, FGC, the FTC women getting a 500 victory over FIU on Monday? Well, what's the most amazing thing about it is to get 500 wins before you get your 100th loss. <laughs> I mean, I don't care what level of what sport it is. I mean, that's an 83-plus percent winning percentage. If you can win better than five out of every six. I mean, that's pretty damn remarkable. In fact, it's never been done in the history of women's college basketball at the D1 level. When this year is over, FGCU will be the number one program in the history of the sport in terms of all-time winning percentage. I mean, that's how historic the first however many years of FGCU basketball and certainly the 10 years of playing, you know, 13 years playing D1 ball or, you know, whatever it is now has been. So, you know, remarkable, averaging 27 wins a year. He's got a transcendent player right now. Kirsten Bell is the best player in the history of FGCU, which is also saying something because Whitney Knight was taken 13th overall in the WNBA draft, and Kirsten Bell is better. And she's got at least one more year of eligibility also. 
So look out. I mean, this, this team, you know, I don't expect them to lose until the NCAA tournament. I expect them to run the table from here. I think they'll be ranked. I mean, Charlie Cream's already got them in bracketology in the single digits as a nine seed, and that's before conference play. I mean, you know, they'll probably enter the tournament with a 20-plus game winning streak, probably a six or a seven seed. Nobody's going to want to play this team. Nobody in the NCAA tournament because they have the one thing that small schools never have. A big. They have the best player on the floor. That's how good Kirsten Bell is. Even if they play one of the big schools, there's a strong likelihood that the best player on the floor is playing for the little school. And that's a game changer. That's how upsets happen. That's how small schools go on big tournament runs. Think Delaware with Elena Deladon, who went to three Sweet 16s and a couple of Elite Eights. That's how that stuff happens. Yeah, and uh, probably the most anticipated game of the year will be when Liberty plays a back-to-back at Alico, and the second half of that will be on ESPNU January 10th. It's a Sunday, 6 o'clock. It'll be going up against the NFL playoffs. So, you know, hey, you get your national exposure when you get your national exposure. But first time in the history of the program that they're on – um, one of the ESPN channels as the sole game. I mean, because even when they've been in the NCAA tournament, they've only been on the deuce regionally, if you will. This is national, coast-to-coast, ESPNU, 6 o'clock on January 10th. The only thing you'll be able to see is FGCU and Liberty. So be a, a great showcase for the program. Yeah, and uh, I can't wait to see what a Smesco's team does on national television and see how many threes they could score against Liberty. Be a fun game. So uh, thank you for hopping on the podcast, and I wish you a ha- healthy and happy Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and uh, hopefully 2021 is a little less insane and more normal. If it's not less insane, all right. Uh, my liver is going to really take a beating, let me tell you. So Merry Christmas. Happy New Year, Big D. Thank you.